Last time I was standing up here was January 2nd, and the message I delivered was pointed at the new year. It was aimed at each one of us taking a look at the coming year and making a decision whether or not to purpose 2022 to be different than 2021 in our spiritual lives. And the directions that one can take for this type of message are nearly endless. But we used two passages of scripture the last time to try to illustrate the kind of purposing that might just change our attitude and our outlook for this coming year. And most certainly it could change the outcome at the end of it all. And the first passage that we used was referenced in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. And it was about Simeon and the way that Simeon lived a life of anticipation. And Luke records, and it had been revealed to him, to Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Simeon was promised by God that he would not die until he had seen Jesus, the Lord's Christ, as Luke recorded. And the thought was that we, too, have been promised that our Savior is coming back. He's going to return. And living with that forward anticipation was the encouragement that that verse was supposed to give us for this year. It was the thing that we could use to make this year better. And the second passage we looked at was from Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And it's recorded that Israel was about to enter the promised land. And if you recall, Joshua had all of Israel camp on this side of the Jordan for three days. I mean, they've been wandering for 40 years, and for three days they have to look at the promised land right there. And the purpose of it was, was many, but if you look at, at what we had, had zeroed in on, it's on verse 5. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do wonders among you. And the application was the same for us as it was for all of Israel before they entered the promised land. He said, consecrate yourselves and expect the Lord to do wonders among you. Make a new commitment to be the person that Jesus Christ designed you to be this year and expect to see wonders. And I was really touched by the application of both of those passages, in, certainly in my own life, for this coming year. And I can't help but wonder if there was anybody else that might have heard the message that day and come away with a true desire to be different this year, spiritually, with a true commitment that could possibly change their spiritual lives. But then I got to thinking that maybe the message was a little light on what to do how to accomplish being the person that God designed us to be. And we certainly talked about the right things. We talked about up, upping our game as far as our prayer life, our Bible study, uh, 
seeking God's direction and ensuring that he was going forward with us. Uh, and obviously knowing where we're going and what we're going to do when we get there is probably important in this year. But I came across another passage since then that really should have been included in the last message, the original plan for 2022. And it's found in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. And it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's hold firmly to the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds, not abandoning our own meeting together, as is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And from this passage, I think we can draw out some things that that we need, that we need to apply, the purposing that, that we can actually do to ensure 2022 to be a year of wonder. But sometimes I think we just need a little push. And hopefully that's what this message will give us, a little push, which reminds me of the story of a couple who were upstairs uh, one night, sound asleep, really stormy night. It was, the wind was blowing, it was raining just terribly, and they were awakened by a loud knock on the front door So the man crawled out of bed and grumpily went downstairs. And when he opened the door, he found a man dripping wet and obviously very drunk, who said to him, can you give me a push? To which the man of the house replied sharply, no, go away from here and sober up. And he slammed the door and stormed back upstairs. And when he got back into bed, he explained what had happened to his wife. And his wife's response was, That wasn't a very kind Christian thing to do. That man could be in trouble, and you just sent him out into the storm for the rest of the night. So reluctantly, the man got out of bed a second time, put on his coat, and went downstairs, and and was sure he wasn't going to get any peace unless he resolved this problem, helping the man. So when he got to the front door, the rain was streaming down. He couldn't see the other man. But he could hear a faint noise out in the front yard, and he called out. He said, hello, are you still there? What can I do to help you? To which the other man replied, could you give me a push? And the guy says, I'd be happy to if I could just see you. Where are you? And he said, I'm over here on your swing. (laughs) Sometimes all a guy needs is just a little push. And that's what we're going to try to do this morning. So, verses 19 through 23 really take us back to the Joshua passage that we started out with at the beginning of the year. A consecration. In fact, it says, you know, we have confidence to enter the holy place. Uh, Let's approach God with a sincere heart, our hearts sprinkled clean, our bodies washed with pure water. The writer of Hebrews is saying, 
okay, you've taken the step to consecrate yourselves. What else do we need to do? And the verses we want to concentrate on this morning are 24 and 25. Let us consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds, not abandoning our own meeting together, as is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So let's start with verse 24. <clears throat> and let us consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds. That's New American Standard. And the idea here seems pretty self explanatory. I'm supposed to encourage you to be more loving and to do good deeds, and you're supposed to do that same thing for me. But I think it's interesting to see how other translations, other versions of Scripture have interpreted this word encourage. What are we supposed to do? What is this encourage? And so the King James uh, Version says, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. NIV says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Uh, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let us consider, oh, let us be concerned for one another to help one another to show love and to do good. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And let us consider one another to incitement of love and good works. <clears throat> Now, I have to admit, there's a few of those words that send something of a negative tone. Let us provoke. That one sounds like you're looking for a fight. Let us spur one another. That's a little negative, a little violent. And then there's stir up, which certainly sounds like something a leader of a revolution uh, movement or a political party might do. Incitement sounds a bit riotous to me. But you get the idea that the writer of Hebrews, when he wrote this, stirring up or inciting or whatever it might be, he expected a strong response from those people that we're dealing with. The people that we're dealing with should respond with some kind of vigor, apparently. And the meaning doesn't seem too elusive. We should be causing other believers to really respond in a positive manner with how we're interacting with them. So the actual word here, and I'm pretty sure nobody wants a PhD in the Greek language, but the word used here is paroxysmos, and the Greek dictionary defines it as a provocation which literally jabs or cuts someone so that they must respond. That's pretty aggressive. He's, he's trying to elicit a response from the people that we deal with. <clears throat> and though the language is pointed and plain, it's not meant to be painful. In fact, it's really just the opposite. The language is meant to excite and to stimulate the others within the body of Christ to do something, and that something is love and good deeds. Some of the references I, <clears throat> I read suggested that one of the main points of the, of the 
passage was that we're to seek out those that are discouraged. <clears throat> Somebody that needs, needs encouragement and feels defeated, feels deflated, unable to succeed. Those kinds of people, we need to seek them out and uh, encourage them, make them feel better, make them feel useful. And there's some biblical foundation for this concept, which actually reminds me of, of a time when the church was still meeting in our backyard, the building behind our, our house. And uh, one evening we were sitting at the supper table as a family, and one of the kids noticed somebody out, out by the church building uh, wandering around. And uh, I looked out, and I couldn't, I couldn't hardly see the guy because it was dark. But... I knew there was somebody out there. I didn't know who it was. And I went out and to see what was going on. And it was one of the neighbors from down the street. And I knew he was going through some really hard times in his personal life. And I asked him if there was anything I could do for him. And he was very distraught. And he said that he was thinking about committing suicide. And he thought it might be better if he did it in a church. And I personally didn't think it would be. Uh, but he thought God might give him a free pass or something if he did it in a church. I don't know. But we got to talking, and I suggested that he hold off on killing himself for a while and maybe try something else. And I knew he had a tractor with a blade on it, and I knew he'd been fired from his job, so he had plenty of free time on his hands. And I suggested that he get on his tractor the first thing in the morning, go down the road, and ask people if he could... Uh, grade their driveways for them. It was winter time. The rain and the slush had made everybody's driveways a mess, almost impassable. And I told him to concentrate on the old people on Sickler Road because they probably need it the most. So the next morning, bright and early, there he went on his tractor. He actually did it. And he was gone all day, and I saw him come back in the evening, and the next morning he was out there again doing the same thing. And I stopped to talk to him, and, and he was a different person. He couldn't believe how much the people appreciated him and his work. In fact, he was almost giddy. And I asked him if he was ever going to think about doing something as stupid he was thinking about doing the other night, and he laughed and said, yes, he was truly an idiot. Uh, but the point is that he quit thinking about himself when he started putting others first. He found out that he was actually useful and a blessing to people he didn't even know. And he found out that he was encouraged to love and good deeds. So encouraging people who are discouraged uh, is definitely a good thing to do, but I don't think it's the point of this passage. Because the setting of the passage is the whole body, not just discouraged people. It's the whole church, and we're to encourage all of our brothers and sisters in Christ to keep on keeping on, to love recklessly, to to do good deeds with abandon, to really put ourselves into it. Actually, we're to be living lives that reflect the love and mercy and the presence of God so much that people just want to naturally smile when they see us coming up. Wouldn't you like to be that person that, you know, 
Some people put a smile on somebody's face when they're leaving. Don't you want to put a smile on somebody's face when you're coming? Wouldn't that be better? Just being someone that when you converse with them, when you share with them, uh, it makes them want to be that person. It makes them want to do that in somebody else's life. This is something so necessary for the body of Christ. We live in a world that is cruel and selfish and ugly. And these are the kind of things that, that unite the body of Christ in an incredible manner. And we need to look at this concept of encouragement from two different angles. From the angle of whether or not we ourselves need to be encouraged. And secondly, from the angle of whether or not I should even be or could even be an encourager. So do I, do you, do, do we as a body need to be encouraged? Well, not everyone believes that encouragement is that important. But as we look into the scriptures, we see that it truly is vital for our lives as believers. And it's just as vital in the life of any body of believers. When encouragement is absent from the life of a church, people feel uninvolved, they feel unimportant, useless, forgotten. God knows his people are in need of grace-filled reminders. So he calls each one of us to be encouragers. One of the things we need to understand is, to, is why encouragement to others is so important. <clears throat> and biblical encouragement isn't complimenting on your new haircut. Oh, you just look marvelous. Or, you know, you really make good salsa. Now, that kind of encouragement is important, certainly if you make good salsa. Uh, but I don't think it's what's being talked about here. Because the type of encouragement the scripture's talking about is not optional. It's to build one another up. It's Christian encouragement. And God doesn't merely recommend it in his word. He demands it. God commanded his people to encourage each other because he knows we need it. He built us that way. And he knows that a church body is a living organism. And it needs to keep growing through encouragement. In fact, Hebrews 3, earlier in, in the book, says, But encourage one another every day as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So according to this verse, Spiritual encouragement keeps us from becoming hardened to sin. We live in a broken world where everything calls us towards selfishness, towards despair. Sin steals joy. It makes our body break down. Our plans fail. Our dreams die. Our perspective dims. And all around us, we witness corruption every day country's a mess, the government is nearly hopeless, and the liberalism that's going on in churches today, the legalization and promotion of sins that are forbidden by scripture, is discouraging. And it all lends itself to everybody needing to be encouraged. 
we're usually too proud to admit it. But the fact is that no matter how influential or secure or mature a person may appear to be, genuine encouragement never fails to help. Most people need massive doses of it every day as they're out there in the trenches just kind of battling life. But unfortunately, genuine encouragement is about as plentiful as unicorn babies. And what our text today reminds us of is that we can't do this alone. One of the issues that continually face believers is the idea that we're okay by ourselves. We've got all we need. And oftentimes we may think that we don't need other Christians in order to progress in our spiritual growth. But we're wrong. <coughs> which leads us to the next verse, which isn't just you need to go to church. But other implications show us the exact reason why. Not abandoning your own meeting together is the habit of some people but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I'm guessing most churches suffer pretty greatly from the number of folks that show up only when it's convenient, only when they don't have something else planned, only when it doesn't conflict with a football game or a golf game. And I use the word suffer there purposely because it's true. This verse is used a lot of times for the purpose of just telling people God wants you to go to church. And he does. That's how he designed his church for us to get together. We're to get together for guidance, for interaction, for teaching, for a number of reasons. But again, let's look at the context of the writer, the writer sets for us here. Verse 24 tells us, to encourage one another to love and good deeds. Then the writer says, and come to church so that you can do that, to encourage one another. You want a passage that really hits the nail on the head in this, in this regard, as far as being at church when you don't feel like it? Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility, consider other Consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So many times I've heard people say over the past 40 years or so, I just don't want to go to church because it's boring. <laughs> or how about, I don't want to go to church because I don't get anything out of it. You ever said that? I don't get anything out of church. But if you look at the context of what's being said here in this passage we're in, it's not about you getting something out of it. It's about you giving something. You're supposed to be here to encourage me and Jeff and Laurel and Diana. You're supposed to be here to encourage them. And they're supposed to be here to encourage you. 
Case in point, about, about three weeks ago or so, the attendance on Sunday morning was way down. We were about half of what we normally are on a Sunday morning. And I'm sure some people were sick and guessing there were those that <clears throat> scheduled something else that morning and probably a few that thought the NFL playoff games were more important. But for whatever reason, the combination of those people that were missing put us down about half attendance of a normal Sunday. And I'm guessing there were a number of people here that morning that looked around and thought, well, oh, this is discouraging. This is depressing. And you know why? Because you weren't here to encourage them. And you weren't here so they could encourage you. And discouragement is a cancer within a church body. It spreads, it harms, and it needs to be treated to ensure that it doesn't take hold. I don't go into, I don't go to celebrities for my theology, but every now and then one of them uh, comes up with something of a philosophical concept that you know comes right out of scripture. In this case, I'm sure it did because it's from Mr. Rogers. If you could only sense how important you are to the lives of the people you meet, how important you can be to the people you may never even dream of. There is something of yourself that you leave at every meeting with another person. So how do we do that? And I think this is where I fell short on the New Year's message. The how. What do we do? What steps can we take as individuals in order to fulfill God's call given to each one of us to be encouragers? Because encouragement isn't just something we might want to do from time to time when we feel like it. It's not just an extra gifted Christian to do. It's not a superpower. It's for every one of us who desire to live a Christ-like life. So I want to give some practical ideas that will actually help us become encouragers. We certainly want to start with the things we talked about during the New Year's message, things like Bible study and, and prayer and, and self-consecration to being who God designed us to be. But what does it look like in practice? This obviously is not going to be anything but a scratch at the surface of ideas for encouraging, but it's a place to start. Pray for God to show you who needs encouraged. Sounds simple. Ask God to bring someone to mind that you should encourage this week. One way to do that is to pray through the phone directory, the church's phone directory. A couple families every, every day. You pray through that and ask God to show you who needs encouraged. Maybe that will inspire some type of action on your part. It's a whole lot easier to connect with people these days, you know, through texting and email and social media. All of them are designed for encouragement. How about taking notes at the end of the service? Every week we ask for prayer requests. What if you took notes and you actually prayed for those people and you emailed them or texted them or called them and said, how's it going with Tia? Anne had a request last week. 
those things, do you have any idea how much people appreciate that? How much encouragement that, that launches in somebody? Maybe it's just a prayer. You know, contact them and say, what can I do to help in this situation? And maybe it is just praying. But maybe it's meals or running errands or, or some other chore that's going to make their lives easier. That's what the prayer requests are for. You've not only encouraged the socks off of somebody, but you've made a much stronger bond with that person, too. You've given yourself something to talk about when you meet next Sunday. And that kind of purposing is a win for everybody. There's an attitude within the modern church that really needs overhauled. And that's the mindset of community. As we've been talking about, Christians are called to put a high value on belonging, of coming together, of mutual encouragement. But it appears that the church body, the community, really isn't that at all. Church is something that a lot of us just add to our lives. It's not something that our lives are centered around. In the Old and New Testaments alike, God's Chosen people are called to community. They're called to be a peculiar people. That doesn't mean being a bunch of oddballs. It means being different. It means being community. They're set apart. They're supposed to be different. They're shown to put an extremely high value on one another as a group, as a family. And it's demonstrated to be a very unique way for God to show the world that his people are indeed different. And the difference is attractive. Remember the first century church in the book of Acts, chapter 2? Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all the believers were together and had all things in common, and they would sell their property and possessions and share them with all to the extent that anyone had need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. There it is again, a sense of awe, wonders and signs, just like Joshua promised Israel. And I love verse 47. The community of believers found favor with all the people. Almost makes you think these new believers were kind of like newlyweds. They couldn't stand to be apart from one another. There was a constant mood of joyful celebration that all participated in. They committed themselves to teaching and fellowship and breaking bread and prayer, all corporate activities designed to inspire community. This is not just togetherness. It's unity. It's not just affection. It's genuine love. We need each other in order to become the beautiful thing that God has designed us to be as a people. Andrew Peterson, in his book, Adorning the Dark, 
says this about the need for community within the church. Community looks you in the eye and reminds you who you are in Christ. They reiterate your calling when you forget what it is. They step into your garden and help you weed it, help you grow something beautiful. But it takes work to build community. And sometimes you have to do the work even when you don't feel like it. Sometimes you have to put away your wants and do what needs to be done. And sometimes you won't like it, but every time it's the right thing to do. I'm pretty sure there isn't a person here this morning or people that should be here and aren't that has a reason for not investing in the people of this congregation. You might have a few lame excuses, but they're not reasons. You can't blame your equipment. You can't blame your lack of time. You can't blame your upbringing. Either you're willing to step into the ring and fight to be the person God designed you to be within this body, or you keep using excuse after excuse until there's no time left and no fight left within you. Here's another place that takes very little effort but shares huge dividends. We find the biblical inspiration for it in 1 Thessalonians 5. But we ask you, brothers and sisters, to recognize those who diligently labor among you and are in leadership over you in the Lord and give you instruction (coughs) and that you regard them very highly in love because of their work. And I think since Alex is gone, this is a perfect Sunday to address this. And it has to do with both points of this Hebrews passage that we're in. We should be encouragers and we should not neglect the gathering of ourselves together. Do you have any idea at all how much time Alex puts into putting a sermon together? Studying for special teachings, praying for you? I can tell you from experience that a message usually takes me about 40 hours to put together. This message took me 44 hours. Admittedly, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, so I'm a little slower than most at putting something together, but, but it takes a long time. How many of you regularly encourage Alex after a message about what a great job he did or something that touched you? If Alex says something that God uses in your life to bring about change or to encourage you or to change something that needs changed, nothing would encourage him more than to hear from you that he actually had an impact on somebody's spiritual life. From from experience, I can tell you that part, too, that there's a real encouragement when a message is received and changes a heart. And that's the encouragement part of this passage. The don't neglect the gathering of yourselves together part of this passage 
is this. If you spent 40 hours putting a message together and hardly anybody showed up to hear it, how encouraging would that be? Again, from experience, I can tell you, not very encouraging. Just your presence here this morning encourages me tremendously. When you laugh at my jokes, it encourages me. But you got to be here to do that. And that's the importance of this concept of community and not neglecting the gathering of yourselves together. Alex does this week after week. But far too often we don't go out of our way to encourage him with words or notes or texts. But we actually discourage him with our lack of commitment. It's important, it's meaningful, it's necessary. God can use you mightily in his life. You're not lacking the ability. You just have to be willing. I think of the number of areas available here in this little body of believers that each one of us could commit to and encourage others because there's ample opportunity. Alex is about to embark on a brief study on Tuesday nights. It's going to be valuable for your understanding of Scripture, which is valuable for your spiritual walk. And just your presence would encourage everybody who's there. And it's free. It doesn't cost you a thing. Women's Bible study on Wednesday night. Would your presence be an encouragement to Ginger, to the other women that are there? Sure it would. What about men's Bible study on Friday mornings? Doesn't cost you anything. And I'm encouraged by every face that's there every Friday morning. And so is everybody else. Even things like the book club or, or the library, thanking somebody involved in that, would that encourage people? Sure it would. And it doesn't cost a thing. And it has eternal value in people's lives. Because unless you're hanging around with believers, you can't encourage believers. One last story. <clears throat> it's about a banker who always tossed a coin in the cup of a legless beggar who sat in the street outside of his bank. But unlike most people that walked by, the banker would always insist on getting one of the pencils from the man's cup. And he would say, you are a merchant. And I always expect to receive good value from the people who I do business with. One day, the legless man wasn't there any longer. And as time passed, the banker forgot about him. Until one day he walked into a public building, and there at a kiosk, at a concession stand, sat the former beggar. He was obviously the owner of his own small business now. 
And he told the banker, I've always hoped you'd come by because you're the re person responsible for me being here this morning. You kept telling me I was a merchant, not a beggar. I started thinking of myself that way. Instead of a beggar receiving gifts, I started selling pencils. And I sold a lot of pencils. You gave me self-respect and caused me to look at myself very differently. That's an example from the workplace. Think of the impact encouragement in spiritual lives could have, the changes that could take place. You have that ability. You want to see wonders in the year 2022? You have to purpose a few things. Tweak some areas of your life, and it's not always going to be easy or fun. You have to change the way you spend some of your free time. Invest in other believers and allow them to invest in you. Start today and reap the benefits forever. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.